if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word. For those of you I've not yet met, my name is Josh. I serve as the, the lead pastor here at Icon. Hey, real quick, before we get in today, I want to give you kind of a, a preview of, of what's to come. So, uh, so next week is our last sermon in this series on Why Us, Why Here, where we're going to talk about transience and the, de- the desire and the need to stay in this city. Um, and then after that, we're going to go into Advent. I'm really excited about that. We're going to look at, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, there are four songs or poems that, that show up uh, from Mary or from Zechariah. There, there's these poems and these songs that they sing at the advent of Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to look at those and see how those songs come when the incarnation of Jesus crosses over with, with the pain of real life and, and we're led to sing. And then in the spring, uh, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, in a series called Jesus the Great Philosopher. Uh, and looking at how Jesus actually, in his person and in his ways, gives us a framework for the good life. So that's where we're headed, just to give you a, a framework for that. For, uh, for today, our scripture reading comes from two places. First, in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. For our second text in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where, we had, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that you are so generous and good to your people, that you've given us a word that actually addresses every aspect of real life. That as we've seen over these last few weeks and as we'll see today, your scriptures are not mute on some of the most important issues of our lives and of our culture. We thank you for your generosity and your goodness to speak to us in these areas. And we, we pray today that as, as we talk about Seattle and activism, and we see the, the ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ should give us as a church the, the virtue of hope in this arena, I pray that your spirit would help us, that, that we would really feel what it is that's gone wrong. We would really feel and sense the weight that this world is not what you intended it to be. And that with that, God, your spirit would give us a great sense of hope, not a self-dependent hope, not a self-reliant hope, but a hope that is purely fixed on Jesus Christ, 
all that he's begun to do and all that we know he will do. And so, Father, would you, would you do that in us today? Would you unite your power with my weak words and bear fruit in us as a church? Be with us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a name I want to remind you of, and I wonder if it brings up any memories. Joseph Coney. Joseph Coney. Or how, how about this phrase? Coney 2012. Anyone know what I'm referencing? Show of hands. Anyone? Yep. Oh, wow. That's more than actually I thought. So in 2012, a viral video hit, hit Facebook, and it was a video that, that told the story of Joseph Kony, who is a, a military cult leader in Africa. And, and Kony is, is one of the, uh, someone designated as, as one of the most dangerous warlords in the world by the UN. And in 2012, a man named J- Jason Russell made a video in order to make him famous. But, but the hope of making him famous was not to make him famous, but to actually bring justice and get him arrested. And this video went viral. It's estimated that three-fourths of all young adults in America saw the video. And it, it stirred up quite, quite the craze in order to get Joseph Coney arrested for the capture of hundreds of children. But here's the thing. <laughs> Joseph Coney, where do you think he is today? Nine years later, he's still hiding, evading capture somewhere in Uganda. Coney 2012 was the first of what would become a normal occurrence in our world today, which is viral hashtag activism, right? Hashtag activism. You you post a picture, you put the hashtag on there, and you feel great about yourself. Today, many people find their most meaningful sense of themselves when they are championing some cause. We, we associate ourselves and, and sadly filter our relationships through the causes that we feel compelled to champion. This is easy to see in Seattle, right? You don't have to get on Instagram of all the other states and all the other places this is happening. It is easy to see in Seattle. Seattle is no longer known for its coffee or its landscape. Seattle should have never been known for its coffee, right? Portland is way better. But it was, so. Man, did I go against the grain there? All right. It's no longer known for Starbucks or for its landscape. In the last couple of years, we've made headlines across the nation for the ways our city has tried to champion causes. And though misguided, seek justice, right? We've, we've made headlines. It's not really an exaggeration to say that, that things like, like CHOP have marked the history of our city. I remember whenever I was moving here from, from Dallas, Texas, and the day that I, I moved here um, was the day that, that CHOP was, was taken away. And I remember moving up here, and you would have, I mean, those sweet Texans, <laughs> you would have thought that this was a war-torn city. <laughs> and that it was just a a lawless land where criminals roamed free. And part of that's true in Seattle, but but not completely. (laughs) Rather than the reality of CHOP being only really a a block or two, our city has an activist heartbeat, right? It's It's a heartbeat of our city. It feels like you can't really call this city home until you find a cause to champion. So I I live in up by the U District, and, and all the time, when, I, when I'm driving down I-5, there's the 45th Street overpass right there. And if any of you live in North Seattle, you know what I'm talking about. There are people who are there, it seems like almost at least every two weeks, with, with a sign of some cause, 
uh, of some, some issue, something they're trying to make known. And, and some of them are, are some of the things that we see in terms of, uh, in ter- in terms of racial reconciliation and racial justice, and we see, so we, we see those. But then some of them are like, nuclear disarmament. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do anything about that. <laughs> I, I can work toward racial justice, and I can work, I can work toward the, the homelessness issue in our city, but I can't do anything when it comes to nuclear arms. There is a heartbeat in this city around activism. In many ways, activism has become a suedo religion in our city with commandments, with, with purity rituals, with religious gatherings and religious aspirations. And, and today... The question I want to ask is just this. How should a Christian in Seattle view the practice of activism? At Icon, we really try to be all about real life. And real life in Seattle often includes either participating in activism or seeing it and watching it from the sidelines. So here's what we're going to do. First, I want to talk about this impulse toward activism in human beings. Why is it there? Why, why do we do it? And then get into to Matthew and Luke and, and see how the Bible shapes the way that we think about protesting or, or working toward justice, okay? That's what we're going to do today. First, let's look at why. Let's consider together why this impulse of activism even exists in this. And let me just say it in one sentence. Activism exists because shalom doesn't. Activism exists because shalom doesn't. It makes no sense to be an activist or a, a social justice warrior if our world is an accident. It makes no sense. If, if the world we inhabit is, is nothing more than the, the random and lucky assortment of particles and chemicals, then the quest for justice on behalf of the vulnerable makes no sense. <laughs> makes no sense. Indeed, to, to be an atheist... And an activist is a confusing paradox. Secular humanism or atheism is founded upon the story of dominance. Homo sapiens are nothing more than animals which over the long arc of evolutionary history have dominated our way to the top through adaptation and through natural selection. And it's that that, that last piece that makes atheism and activism incompatible. Incompatible. If natural selection is the reason why we have dominated natural history, then the act of championing the cause of the vulnerable, of pushing forward the cause of the weak, makes no sense. It makes no sense. In in the world of of natural selection, propagation of the species is our goal, right? We We gotta keep these Homo sapiens moving forward. And one of the ways that we do that is not just through dominance of other species, but also by filtering out, pushing down, and in many cases in history, putting to death those that hold us back. This is why wherever atheism has has really taken hold, it's had some really dire consequences for the vulnerable. Whether in atheistic socialism and communism in the last hundred years, as horrific as that has been, it's at least intellectually consistent. It's at least intellectually consistent. It takes the domination of the strong seriously and the weak are weeded out. But that story is unlivable. (laughs) 
That, that story is unlivable. We have within us an activist spirit, an activist impulse, because our brain, not because our brain chemicals have, have suddenly shifted toward compassion now that we're at the top of the food chain, now that we're at the top of natural history. We have within us an activist spirit because we carry in us a memory of what this world was supposed to be. We, we have in us this inclination to, to work for those who are vulnerable, to work for those who are not living in a world that we know they should be living in. We have, as society, a, a core memory of shalom, of peace, of wholeness. We, we have that in us, that, that in the beginning, God created a world in which order and peace was the norm what was the norm was not an aberration, was not a blip like we see and experience in our lives today, but was the norm, the experience of the universe when God created everything was peace, was rest, wholeness at every level. And then God commissions, we see this in, in Genesis 1 and 2, God commissions human beings to go and spread that order out to the world Go and take and confront the chaos of the world and bring it into order. That is what drives our quest for justice as human beings. We remember what life is supposed to be. We, we carry in us a, a core memory of God's desire for a just society in which peace reigns. That's why we see activism. Activism exists because shalom doesn't, and we know it should. That's why there is this activist impulse. And yet, we have this instinct toward justice because the, the human psyche remembers what the world is supposed to be like. But here's the thing. This, this core memory of shalom and this original commission to, to go and create order and peace in the world, though we as human beings remember that, we feel that, Though we have not lost that instinct, it is now filtered through the reality of personal sin and corruption. We want justice. We want it. But because we are fractured at the core by sin, we either want it for the wrong reasons or we seek it in the wrong ways. And this is where our city's ethic for justice has gone wrong. The desire for justice the drive towards shalom is good, but now it is all working in a heart that is corrupted by sin. And so we work for justice, but our efforts at justice have become tainted. How's, how's this working itself out today? Well, one way that our sin has tainted our desire and quest for justice is through the use of activism as an expression of a messiah complex. You see that in our society? There is this, we, we, we want justice, but in our sinful hearts, we have this messiah complex where we are tricked into thinking that we, as human beings, we are the solution. We, we can fix this, guys. We can do it. We can move the world forward. Whether through education or economics, we think that we as human beings have every tool necessary 
to take this corrupt world and bend it back into the shape of utopia. We really think we can do that. We, we really think that we can go and fix this whole thing. But here's the problem. Not only does that include the, that, that impulse of, of Messiah complex include the delusion that, that we're our own Messiah, but it also sets up an unavoidable clash between politics. We're going to go there. <laughs> Talked about sexuality last week. Let's just go to the easier topic of politics. <laughs> if our society believes that we can cure our world from injustice, what's the most obvious route to take to administer that cure? Politics. In a, in a world where we can fix every injustice, supposedly, we take up politics as our religion. We worship at the altar of the voting booth and believe that if we only get the right people in office, then we can fix this whole thing. We can catch this world as it bends and spirals down into chaos. We can catch it through our politics. And of course, pol politics is an, an important piece of creating justice in our world, but politics is a terrible religion. And our society, our culture, our city, and maybe even some of us here have made politics into a pseudo religion. It is our hope for the good life, <laughs> but it's a terrible religion. Politics is a terrible religion where political stump speeches are, are gospel, that, that, that means that everyone with a different political opinion is not a voice to be heard, but a danger to be silenced. This belief that, that we are our own Messiah and that we will accomplish our messianic task through the use of politics, it begins to set up a world in which there are unquestionable saints and irredeemable reprobates. Anyone outside of your party affiliation is an unredeemable reprobate and must be tossed into the bin in order to move your messianic mission of progress forward. How does that sound for creating justice in the world? It doesn't work. Politics have become our new religion. It's the, it's the main way by which we express our activist spirit and our Messiah complex. We think we can fix this thing, and we have taken up politics as our issue and our point of faith. Listen to how the author Shadi Hamid points this problem out in his article how, in The Atlantic, how politics replaced religion in America. This is a long quote, but it's, I think it's really important. He's talking about how politics have replaced religion in America. But if secularists hoped that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological and intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to be have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. He goes on. No wonder the newly ascendant American ideologies having to fill the vacuum where religion once was are so divisive. They are meant to be divisive. On the left, and he uses this term derogatorily, but have some grace. On the left, the woke take religious notions such as original sin, atonement, ritual, and excommunication and repurpose them for secular ends. 
Adherents of wokeism see themselves as challenging the long-dominant narrative that emphasized the exceptionalism of the nation's founding, whereas religion sees the promised land as being above, in God's kingdom, the utopian left sees it as being ahead, in the realization of a just society here on earth. After Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in September, droves of mourners gathered outside the Supreme Court, some kneeling, some holding candles, as, as though they were at the Western Wall. And on the right, adherents of a Trump-centric ethno-nationalism still drape themselves in some of the trappings of organized religion, but the result is a movement that often looks like a tent revival stripped of Christian witness. Donald Trump's boisterous rallies were more focused on blood and soil than on the Son of God. Trump himself played both savior and martyr, and it is easy to marvel at the hold that a man so imperfect can have on his, shoulder, on his soldiers. Many on the right find solace in conspiracy cults such as QAnon that tell a religious story of earthly corruption redeemed by a godlike force. Politics have become our religion because we think we can fix this thing. Where, there, where there's no outside hope in a closed world where Christianity is pushed aside or even just religion in general is pushed aside as unthinkable, that, that closes the world, which also closes the possibility of any outside help for this quest for justice. And so we've got to take it up. We've got to be our own messiahs. And the easiest way to do that is to make politics your religion as terrible and as unthinkable and un unhelpful as that is. This religion of politics has led also to a, a second problem in the quest for justice. When politics is your religion, then activism becomes just one route through which you can express your devotion. When politics replaces religion, our activism becomes a place in which we can perform our zeal. We get in on the protest, not just because we believe in the cause, not just because we think we are our own messiahs, but because we want to perform our zeal to the watching world. Performative zeal. Is that not a good description of so much of the activism that we see in a secular society? That's why hashtag activism even exists. We can't keep our activism away from social media. People got to know how devoted we are. People got to know that we're allies, right? People got to know that we are allies. It's performative zeal. Protests, pickets, and hashtag activism become the place in which we can identify ourselves as one of the good ones and perform our zeal for the political cause. And unfortunately, the best way to perform your zeal is through what? Becoming an extremist. Which, as we can all imagine, does not bend the, history, the, the moral history of our world towards justice. That's why there's such an issue. There's such a, that's why activism can stall in our society. It's because we've divorced it out of any greater purpose, any greater God or thing that is actually driving and, and wanting justice. It's just ourselves. We can do it. It's my religion, and the best way to express my religion is through performative zeal. And that, in the end, does not get real justice done. It just doesn't. Into, into this mess, though, 
of our Messiah complex, which leads to performative zeal in politics, what does the Christian worldview have to offer? What, what does Christian worldview have to say to this category of activism? I think two things, and this is where we'll get into our text. One, a deeper foundation for justice, a much deeper foundation for justice, and two, a, a more livable hope for justice. So let's think about those. If you have your Bible, will you open them? We're going we're gonna to look through this text. What is, what is that deeper foundation? Look at the text in Matthew 6 with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Performative zeal. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The foundation for all Christian activism it is certainly the image of God. We talk about that a lot, right? Here at Icon, it's literally in our name that, that all human beings, regardless of race, ethnicity, ability, economic status, sexual orientation, gender, all of us are worthy of dignity, of respect. In the Christian worldview, human beings are sacred. And that's that first, that's that first driving impulse toward justice. But here in this text, we actually see a, a, another foundation for why Christians should think about activism. And it's this, that working for the lived value of others is something that actually excites the heart of God. That, that's a that's a foundation for why we as Christians care about justice, not just because all of us together are worthy of dignity, but also because justice done and performed on behalf of the vulnerable, such as giving to the needy, excites the heart of God toward reward. That, that's, this text revolves around reward, that those people who are performing their zeal, they have their reward. They have what they want. Those who make known that they are an, an ally through social media, they have their reward. But for the Christian who practices justice, not for the sake of praise of others, but for the sake of actual justice, they are rewarded with God's favor. God sees their actions in secret, and those actions actually excite the heart of God. The reward of the Christian who seeks justice is the reward of a life lived under the pleasure of God. That is a much better foundation on which to practice and do justice than just performative zeal, just wanting all the other people to, to praise you. That, the goal of the Christian life is to please God, to, to love him well and to have his heart excited with our life. It's a better foundation, a better incentive toward practicing justice because it's not dependent on the noise of the crowd. We see that in our society, don't we? The shouts of activism, they rise and fall cyclically, seasonally, whenever some act of injustice is broadcasted to the masses. The crowd swells on the streets 
but inevitably it diminishes as the initial shock of that injustice goes away. Performing our zeal with the crowd is a terrible foundation and motivation for justice, because it means our zeal for justice is only as strong when the crowd is loud. But for the Christian, not we, we don't take into account what he calls there the the trumpeting on the on the streets. But rather, we have a God who's always there, always ready to reward with his pleasure those who are working for justice. That's a better incentive. That works out better in the actual quest for justice because it's not up and down with the crowd, but it's dependent on pleasing a God who is always looking for those who will work justice into this world. That's a better foundation because it pleases God. It doesn't wax or wane with a megaphone, but rather stays steadily devoted to justice because our acts of justice actually please God. That's a better foundation. And why, why does it please God? Why, why do acts of justice such as giving to the needy actually please God? Because it joins him in the work that he desires to see in the world. And that's a more livable hope for activism. Look, look at that text in Luke. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled at the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Just a mic drop moment for Jesus, right? Here's the scroll. Let me sit down. Everything I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is, this is the first instance in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus actually speaks to a crowd. And, and what does he say? That he has been sent by God, indeed, anointed by God with power, special power, in order to begin the work of establishing justice and peace back into the world. The blind, the, the marginalized, the oppressed, Jesus has come for them. And, and certainly the, this text has a spiritual aspect, spiritual blindness. Jesus cures us of that. He, he picks us up, up, up out of the slavery and oppression of our sin, of course. But we can't over-spiritualize it Je because Jesus actually did these things, right? It's not just that he wants to remove spiritual blindness, but he actually wants to give sight to the blind. He actually wants to proclaim liberty for the captives. He wants to elevate the oppressed. Our more livable hope as Christians, which drives our quest for justice, is this. Our works of justice are not an expression of a Messiah complex, but rather extensions of the work of the actual Messiah <laughs> Extensions of the work that the actual Messiah is already doing. Our work for justice does not come from 
the unlivable hope of mankind's supposedly inevitable progress. Rather, our, our quest for justice is simply joining in on the work of what God is already doing in the world. In our work of justice, we're not blazing a trail, but following a Messiah, an actual one. We're following a Messiah whose work and intention is to loosen the world from the grips of injustice and establish, again, peace, wholeness, a shalom that's immune from evil and pain. That's what our God is doing, and that's why we have a hope to go and do justice, because we're not blazing a trail. It's not up to us. We're just following our Messiah. He's already doing it. He's already concerned for justice. And, and this is why God in the Old Testament tells his people to, to what is it, do, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. The reason why God continues to harp on the Israelites to actually practice justice is not because God is wholly dependent on this little group of people to establish peace in the world, but rather it's an issue of association. The Israelites are meant to be this people that, that show what it's like to live under God's rule, and so... For God, for these Israelites to not practice justice, to not love mercy, is an untrue statement about what he is. God is concerned about justice. God in the Old Testament harps on the Israelites to do it because God himself does justice, loves mercy, and as we see in Jesus Christ, walks humbly. The quest for justice, the impulse for justice in the Christian is that we already have, it's not that we're going to create our own world, our own utopia, but we see that God's already in the action of doing that. He's already begun it in Jesus Christ. He's already working toward that. Jesus Christ has set off a revival of peace in the world. And we may not see that, of course, but that's what he's done. In his coming, in his work, he is continuing to establish justice in the world. And that's a more livable hope for actually seeking justice. And so that's why we as Christians in this category should have so much hope for justice. Do you have any hope that justice is actually going to happen in this world? When you see the problems of our world, when you, when you contrast that core memory of shalom with what is actually going on in the streets, do you have a real hope that justice is again going to reign? You should, if you're a Christian. God himself has intervened in human history to save us and to save our world from us. To take up in his own hand the cause of justice and peace. That, that original confession of the Christian faith, Jesus is Lord, is an expression of hope, is an expression of right now, Jesus is Lord, 
and then an expression of hope that he will again reign. He will bring peace and hope. He will continue what he began and bring it to completion. That's our great hope. So I want you, I want you to really think, what is your hope for justice? Can you answer that for yourself right now in your head? What's, what's your level of hope for justice? Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it could happen? And if so, how? Is it only through the inevitable progress of education and economics? Or does your hope, does your impulse for activism happen because you see that you are joining Jesus in the work of justice that he's already doing? What's your level of hope? If we as a church are to join our city in pickets and in protest, we first need to analyze what our level of hope is. Whether we think God is going to fix this whole thing or not. Because if you don't believe that, you'll do exactly what our city does. You'll get exhausted or become an extremist. But as a Christian, we can have hope. We see that Jesus, not, not only through his miracles and his teachings, but through his cross and resurrection, that Jesus is again establishing justice in the world. The cross of Jesus Christ communicates that God is indeed a God of justice. He will not overlook sin, even ours. The cross yells to the world that we are not the Messiah, <laughs> but the problem. The cross yells to, the cross has outed humanity as the problem. We can't be our own solution for justice. If it, if it took Jesus dying to save us, that outs us as the problem and not as the Messiah. But it also shows that God is a God of justice. He will bring every account into correction. But the good news is that the actual Messiah has come to fix our problem of sin. The core of our unjust world, Jesus has come to fix that peace. We, all of us who are, who are to some level both victims of injustice and victimizers, we can be forgiven of our sin through the justice of the cross. We can be forgiven of that. And the resurrection tells us, Christian, listen to this. The resurrection tells us that, Jesus, that nothing can stop Jesus when it comes to remaking and renewing our world. That's the great hope of justice for the Christian, is that Jesus has a beating heart again. Yes, indeed, he died for our sin. Yes, our sin stopped the pulse of Jesus as he laid under the justice of God toward our sin. But the great message of Christianity is that Jesus got up. And when I say that he was raised, I mean that he was actually raised. His heart pumping again. Neurons firing again. And Jesus is the great testimony of where God is taking our world to peace and renewal. With that, we can have hope. 
Let's trust in our Lord. Not in our own Messiah complex, not, in our, not, not giving weight to our performative zeal. But let's trust in our God, who's already blazed the trail of a new world where shalom again will indeed reign. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, that, that you are concerned with the state of our world. We're the ones who wrecked it, but yet you did not leave us to spiral down into unthinkable and unlivable chaos, but you, by your grace, sent Jesus Christ to arrest that chaos in order to bring order back, and we believe as Christians, our great impulse toward activism is because we believe that you are bending the arc of history toward peace again in Jesus Christ. God, would you help us as a church, as this church, to have our hope placed there? Not in politics, not in performative zeal, but in the zeal of Jesus Christ that consumed him to the point of going to death and rising again to make and begin a new world. And we Honestly, God, we, we say in this world of injustice, Jesus, come again. Come and fix everything that's gone wrong. And until then, let your church do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Because we are following a Lord who has done just that. Give us that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You're about to hear the post-sermon Q&A with Pastor Josh. Thanks for listening. Feel free to check out our Instagram during the week for questions that we didn't have time to answer in service. Number one, there are many Christians today that seem to have an unhealthy obsession with activism, exegeting the scriptures in order to compel others to pursue justice and in, so, in doing so, pointing ultimately to justice rather than to Jesus. How do we properly pursue exhorting people towards a holistic view of the cross that reconciles both God to man and man to each other without losing sight of Jesus? I think one of the best ways to do this is to point out how almost every, almost every instance of justice really moving forward has been, the, has been the product of Christians who really believed in Jesus as the, as, as the one who brings justice. Like, when you think about when you think about the civil rights movement and you see that their core ethic was uniquely Christian and that they felt that they, even, even things such as nonviolent protests, the reason they did that is because they believed in something higher than their ability to actually go and pursue it. And so I think one of the best ways to do it is, is of course, to, to correct other Christians who see justice as the gospel when, in fact, the gospel creates justice. When of course, correct them in that, but also point out how, how every instance of, of real justice moving forward has been the result of when people took the gospel of Jesus seriously. So I, I think that's, that's one way. Uh, it, by the way, if you're a parent of one of our, our older kids, you can, you can move out now to, to go, go grab them for communion because we have one more question. Number two, are we not called to engage the culture and politics where we can? How can we sit silent in the face of the brokenness around us? Well, I hope that my sermon didn't 
communicate that we should be, be silent. Really, my, my hope is that we would see is that the force of hope that our world places on politics is, is unrealistic. It's just, it's unrealistic. Of course, we should engage. That's the reason why even last week, if you were here, the reason we started off our uh, sermon with a, with a prayer around those who had just been elected in our city. Of course, we should engage it. But, but you need to watch your heart to really think, to really see what's the, you know, if, if you had a joy meter or a hope meter, what's that thing doing when you think about certain political opponents or political realities. Of course, it should upset us when, when we believe that someone who's in office is going to be unhelpful for the task of justice, but does it, does it completely wipe out hope for you? And if it does, that's a problem. So of course, we, we should engage. We, we can't sit silent in the face of brokenness and injustice. We should vote in our local elections, because it starts there, folks. Vote there, engage there but then engage it knowing that all of that is really, really good, but ultimately we are not in control of all of that. We, we have a hope that, that's much deeper than that. So yes, engage, but don't engage as if the rising star of your political party is the solution for the quest of justice. That's my only point of critique when it comes to our politics as religion. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.